Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Vanessa Cook about her new book, Spiritual Socialists, Religion and the American Left, which just came out this fall from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Hi, Vanessa. How's it going? Hi, good morning. Welcome, and thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. So just to start out, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in history and becoming a historian, and especially in this topic? (laughs) Well, I could go back pretty far. In eighth grade is when I first realized that I had an interest and an affinity for history. Um, uh, Eighth grade history teacher inspired me in that direction. And I at first thought I would become a high school history teacher, like that inspiring teacher. But then when I went to undergrad, I started taking, um, of course, the required teaching courses for a secondary ed degree and found that I really wanted to take more history classes and not anything else, really. So uh, in order to pack my schedule with more history classes, I realized that um, another career path would probably be necessary. And so then I started to get inspired by my history professors there in college and thought about, you know, if I really love this topic and this, this this discipline and material, then maybe I should go into higher ed teaching. And so that set me on a journey um, towards grad, graduate school, which I went to UW-Madison and then was um, interested in uh, topics in the new left and in that 1960s framework when I got to UW-Madison as a graduate student. Cool. So how did you come to think about the new left through this topic of spiritual socialists, which we'll get a little bit more into later, what exactly you mean with that term. Mm -hmm. But how did you come to be interested in thinking about the relationship between leftists and religion? Well, I got interested in the new left because I was just always, you know, from a teenager onwards interested in protest movements of the 1960s and the cultural aspects of that, including the music of that time period, um, the countercultural aspects of that time period, um, and the politics. And so I didn't hear of the term new left until I was an undergrad and a professor of mine said, hey, you know, you're talking about the new left and uh, their agenda for radical change. So I started to read about them more thoroughly and you know, the new left is typically, as many radical movements are, typically thought of in secular terms and very straight political terms of power and uh, protest and change. But as I was reading sources on the new left and primary documents like the Port Huron Statement of the Students for a Democratic Society, I started to pick up on some spiritual type of language and moral arguments for what they were saying um, and approaching um the needs of human beings in more than just materialistic 
dollars and cents terms, but more about their spiritual needs as human beings and more going into a human rights and civil rights direction. And so I started to think about, you know, is there something to this that there is a spiritual component and underlying spiritual component to some of what was being argued? You know, not everyone, obviously, in the movement had these religious, had a religious background or an interest or sensibility, but um, I started to look into to what extent there was a spiritual element in new left thinking and writing. And so I started to find some individuals like Staunton Lind, um, who ended up being my, my, my master's thesis topic and interviewing him about that fusion of politics and spirituality in his own lifetime and activism. And then I started to branch out from there and thought, okay, what are the antecedents to this? You know, in the 1960s, you can see some of it coming to the foreground with movements like the civil rights and Martin Luther King Jr. and all the spiritual people surrounding him demanding radical change. But I wanted to look back further. And so that's what got me into the earlier 20th century. So your book is making an argument that there, in fact, is a much longer history of a a religious left and particularly of of religious foundation for socialism. So could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the term spiritual socialist? Who is a spiritual socialist? What what does that term mean? And is that your term or, or a term that they would have embraced themselves? So that is a term that my advisor at UW-Madison and I came up with to describe this new tradition that really had gone unnoticed by many scholars. Um, And it's different from the social gospel. So the social gospel, I think, is a little bit more familiar for people. Um, The social gospel, you know, started to emerge in the late 1800s, early 1900s in the U.S., particularly around the turn of the century there, became a very popular uh, way of thinking about how religion and daily life intersect. And so ministers and theologians started to look at what did Jesus actually do and say about life on earth rather than just, you know, promises of an afterlife and the supernatural elements of Christianity. But what did Jesus actually say about helping the poor and, you know, feeding the hungry and visiting the sick and in prison? And, you know, they started to really focus on those uh, social parts of the Gospels that, you know, weren't supernatural and weren't about the afterlife, but in, in fact, improving people's lives here and having more cooperative um sort of fellowship on earth and more community driven. Um, And so that was an impetus for a social gospel movement in the early 20th century, wrapped up in a lot of progressive reforms in the early 20th century. And probably the biggest proponent, the most popular proponent of that was a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch, who wrote a very influential book in the early 20th century called Christianity and the Social Crisis. And he was looking at particularly urban problems in New York City and elsewhere. He lived in New York City, but in Chicago and elsewhere. Um, you know, how do we deal with social issues in a Christian from a Christian approach? Do we just let people live in squalor and struggle and suffer? Or as Christians, should we try to help them? And so he started to pull out passages from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, but really focusing on what Jesus said about helping people. And so he and a bunch of others started to write and talk more about this concept of the social gospel and influence people in the U.S. and in congregations to actually go out and help people in daily life and not just pray and go to church and worry about 
you know, saving your soul for the afterlife. And so that actually, when you talk about an inspiration, reading his book for the first time was eye-opening to me personally, and then both as, as a, personally, but then as a scholar as well, and just helped me kind of come at radical change from a different perspective after I read his book about how Christianity wasn't necessarily antithetical to radical social change. And so, sorry to get back to your original question. So the social gospel was well entrenched, but these spiritual socialists, I thought were doing something a little bit different because the social gospel was more about progressive reform in the early 20th century. There were some who, social gospelers who were a little bit more radicalized and were talking about real fundamental structural change that, you know, socialists and communists would have talked in terms um, of that structural change. Um, Many of them were Marxists, but for the most part, they were more reformers in a more liberal, progressive vein. Um, And then after World War I, there was a lot of disillusionment about the possibility of that change ever happening. There was disillusionment about a hope forever perfecting society to a point of like a kingdom of God on earth and a lot of cynicism about that. But spiritual socialists, when I pick up the story in the early 1920s, they were determined to try and find a way forward and to, um, to actually retain that hope of perfecting society, but they felt like it couldn't just be sort of surface level reforms that it had to actually go deeper into social behavior, the way communities are constructed, the way people behave in communities and help each other at the local level. And so instead of like top down reform with legislation or, you know, political parties and political processes, um, these spiritual socialists started to look at, hey, if we really want to change the world, we have to start with how we treat each other in our daily lives and communities that we live in. In your book, you go through several individuals and you talk a little bit about their lives and their beliefs as you go along. And I thought we would spend a little time exploring one or two of those people in, a, in more depth. But before we do that, I was curious, as you mentioned, that this is your term rather than theirs. But if you might talk a little bit about the, the socialist side. Um, especially since that's a term that can sometimes be one that garners a lot of misperceptions in American life and culture and politics in particular. And so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about um, the extent to which these folks are self-identified socialists or how they're using that word and how you're using that Mm -hmm. term, kind of what it means in this context, since again, it's a term that's often um, defined or misdefined in a bunch of different ways in American Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So that was one of the biggest challenges with writing this book and using that term, because you never want to retroactively like assign a label to people who didn't identify. But then again, we're historians and we're trying to see maybe traditions or streams and threads that people didn't realize at the time were going on and that they were part of a network that really just didn't have a name. So um, the people who I feature in the book had a very um, unique way of thinking about socialism. And some of them did actually outright define themselves or identify as socialists, like Sherwood Eddy, the YMCA missionary or former YMCA missionary who came back to the United States and uh, publicly declared that he was a socialist. He said, I'm not a communist. I'm not a liberal. I am a socialist. And he tried to make the case for 
the fact that Christianity was actually could could very easily dovetail with the socialism that he was talking about. Um, Staunton Land also, you know, an outspoken democratic socialist. Uh, some have made the argument about Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, as a democratic socialist and that he at least privately um, identified as one. Now, it does get tricky because because as you just said, that is such a contested term and such a liability for some people at the time to use that as an identifier because they might get labeled as communist or too radical or unchristian or, or whatever, you know, un-American for using it, that they did sometimes have ambivalence about using that term, especially if they didn't want to condone the type of socialism that that term usually denoted, like that definition, the traditional definition usually um, means, you know, more of a top-down state-centric, like state-centered central government power, kind of managing everything from the top down and in a very structured way that maybe doesn't leave a lot of room for democratic possibilities and individual participation. And so the the people I feature in my book definitely did not advocate or identify with that type of socialism because they didn't want a top-heavy power structure kind of telling people what to do from the top down. And they also realized that power can be very corruptive and corrupting and didn't want to to repeat the same kind of mistakes um, that any corrupt leadership would have. They wanted it to have, be very values-based, very Christian values-based or religious values in general, not just Christian, very ethical and moral. And so that's why they really push for this more democratic socialist um, kind of framework. And so democratic socialist, that term, uh, which is still used today and was used back then, Many of them would have embraced that term, democratic socialist, as more in line with what they were thinking and getting at. But I thought that democratic socialists didn't really, that term doesn't often pick up on the spiritual elements that I was trying to highlight in these people's thinking. And, and it was the spiritual and religious elements that really drove their activism. That's where a lot of their motivation came from and how they framed their whole thinking about change and going towards a kingdom of God on earth. And so that's why I thought, well, democratic socialism is is a little too broad for what I'm getting at, and it misses that spiritual component. So that's why spiritual socialists, I thought, hit the hit the nail on the head a little bit more clearly. Okay, so before, as I listen to you talk, before we talk about an individual, I was hoping you might also talk a little bit about how communism fits in here, because one of the things... If, that I um, took from your book is that especially in this early period um, that you're talking about here, a lot of the people you're thinking about are really particularly looking for a kind of um, shared equality that is different from communism, that is not communist. They are thinking of themselves, it seems like, overtly as not in that tradition, as you mentioned, especially mm-hmm. not thinking about a state down, but there are other aspects that are yep. um, distinguishing them from communism. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about those. Yeah, for sure. So some of the uh, people in the book like AJ Musty or Dorothy Day actually had experience in activism in communist or fellow traveling Trotskyist, you know, whatever uh, organizations or the Socialist Party as an organization in its traditional sense. 
and those different branch organizations. And it was very secular for them. And it didn't really satisfy the spiritual need or the spiritual viewpoint or worldview that they had in mind. And so they did have a um, trajectory from going to more secular radicalism to a more spiritual uh, infused radicalism. And what they said about communists is that they, they respected communism in theory because it was uh, at least trying to make change to better society and to help people who were marginalized and struggling. But it, they thought that communists made a few errors that they couldn't really continue to advocate for. Um, one of those was violence. And so even though not all spiritual socialists in my book were pacifists or completely anti-war, and I have a whole chapter about how spiritual socialists actually contested and debated um, war like World War II, for example, that became a huge issue within that within that network. But they also, uh, many of them thought that communists were a little too violent in uh, their methodology, too quick to advocate for overthrowing the government, for you know stirring up chaos for chaos's sake, or for just grabbing power um, for power's sake. Uh, so that was one issue that many spiritual socialists have with communists. Um, but the other one was that communists and even traditional socialists tended to focus um, much more on, you know, materialistic needs like, um, you know, the bread and butter issues of pay, wages, benefits, worker conditions in factories, and very trade union type of issues that they were organizing and, and, and uh, um, advocating for. And even though spiritual socialists agreed with them that those needs uh, needed attention and that companies and the government had to do something to better those conditions and respect and, and compensate workers better, they were like, you know, that's great, but there's also other um, features of, of, human, uh, of human society that aren't being met by just focusing on the materialistic needs of people. And so they started to look at the whole uh, individual, their humanity in in total, and not just them as workers, as a proletariat, which, as you know, proletariat, um, you know, the labor sort of focus on the proletariat is one of the hallmarks of communist uh, theory. But my spiritual socialist started to think about, you know, what are people's needs in communities outside the workplace, you know, where they live, cooperating with each other for health care, cooperating each other for you know, education for um, all kinds of things that, you know, they're dealing with outside of their workplace. So instead of thinking of them just as workers in the workplace, they started to think about their spiritual needs, their needs for uh, cooperation and community beyond that. And things like race, for example, that um, started to come to the forefront, gender issues, you know, those sort of issues that became um, more on the agenda of the left in the late 50s and early 60s, they were starting to think about that earlier in the 20s and 30s. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about one or two people to make this a little bit more concrete and give give listeners an example. Um, I was particularly interested or wondered if you might talk about Sherwood Eddy, who you've already mentioned briefly, um, but he has a, a particularly interesting life and if you could tell us a little bit about him and his his activism. Sure. So Sherwood Eddy grew up uh, fairly wealthy 
Um, his father was a successful businessman, and so Sherwood Eddy wasn't really wanting for, um, you know, a lucrative career or money. He had a, a very uh, healthy inheritance to live off of, but he was um, inspired at a retreat, a, a Christian retreat up in upstate New York that uh, Dwight Moody was um, giving, and he was inspired to join the student volunteer movement which was a popular activity to try and get college-age students to go serve as missionaries for a certain number of years. Um, and so he signed up to do that. He was a missionary in both China and India for decades, starting in the late 1800s. And he started to try and figure out how to improve people's lives in these oftentimes very poor, very primitive villages um, without many resources. And he started to realize that, you know, these people didn't just need their souls saved and, you know, promises of an afterlife, but they actually deserved a better life uh, in the here and now. And so he started trying to think of ways to do that and, uh, and got interested in social gospel sort of theology. But then when he came back to the United States, he really um, started to want, he wanted to apply what he had learned abroad over in the United States, and he had been a chaplain in World War One, so he saw the atrocities of, of war, and he felt like it was uh, mostly a war fought by capitalists for money making, with you know the lives and bodies of poor people um, bearing the brunt of that. And he saw also how soldiers acted very in very oftentimes immoral ways. But instead of blaming that on the individual, he started to see that it was really just a function or a reflection of the conditions that they were living in and the terms of the warfare that was really uh, causing them to behave in a certain way. And once he saw that and he started thinking about capitalism, how capitalism really defines and determines how people think about society and their place in it, he started to become much more critical of capitalism um, and to see how disjointed it was from his Christian values and that this was not really the setup for how Christian values could flourish because capitalism, he thought, was in many ways antithetical to his Christian values. So when he comes back to the United States, he declares openly he's a socialist, but he means it in this very grassroots, uh, you know, localized, uh, community-based way. And in during the Depression years, he decided to put this into practice. And so he heard of, you know, displaced tenant workers, tenant farmers in the Delta Valley area of Arkansas and Tennessee, and some people contacted him about giving a donation uh, and trying to support some sort of place where these displaced tenant farmers could go. I mean, there were some New Deal programs designed to help them, but they were falling through the cracks of these New Deal programs. That's a, a different topic that you can get into and uh, read about elsewhere. But Eddie decided not just to give a donation, but to actually set up a foundation and to actually buy property with money, much of it from his own pocket, um, and get other influential socialists and religious leaders involved in this. Uh, and so they bought two farms um, to experiment with this idea of cooperative living and uh, gave many displaced tenant workers, both black and white, a place to live integrated, which was very controversial, particularly in that region, and um you know, they started to farm together as a cooperative community, living and working together. And he thought of this as a socialist experiment. And it's um, interesting to note, and I make this uh, point in the book, that many 
socialists who you, you know, they didn't go around talking in Christian terms very often, but uh, they were involved in the project and were interested in helping Eddie with this. So how about in your your research, how who did you find most interesting or different or surprising um, to, to kind of expand this and how representative in some ways is Eddie of the folks in your book? Um, I think most people, the readers of the book, you know, before it was published, but then afterwards as well, were most surprised by my inclusion of Henry Wallace in the book, you know, former vice president to Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he was part of his cabinet for a while and then and then became vice president during the war years. And I think with the definition, first of all, with the definition I use, they think, well, Henry Wallace was in a very top-down position. He was part of the national government. You know, how much did he really get involved in grassroots activism? Um his involvement maybe isn't all that evident, but definitely in his writings and his speeches, you can hear him advocating for for more of a community-based local approach to problems. And he thought of the New Deal as he loved the New Deal and believed in it very wholeheartedly, but he thought of it as a temporary, uh, temporary fix and that in order for a long-term change to happen, that the New Deal spirit really had to be infused more at the local level and how people treated each other in daily life in a more sort of cooperative community way. And so he talked about that. Uh, it was more theory for him rather than actually, you know, getting into the activism activism himself, like many of the people who I uh, talk about in the book were actually activists um, in, the, in these grassroots communities. The other thing about... Wallace is they think of him more of a New Deal liberal, which is true to a certain extent, but there were um, a lot of things, again, that he said and spoke about or wrote about that indicated that he had a much more radical perspective on change than FDR or, you know, many people in the New Deal liberal category. And he was even at the time accused of being a socialist and he didn't want to embrace that term because of the connotations that it had. Um, and because of you know the way people thought of traditional socialism, uh, and he wasn't really uh, in in favor of that. So I think he fits well. And in fact, I got a good endorsement. His grand, either great great grandson or uh, grandson, uh, just sent me an email via the press, uh, University of Pennsylvania Press, that got to me a couple weeks ago. And this great grandson said. Of all the people who have written about my relative, you understood his political outlook the best. And he was very much in favor of his inclusion in the book and, you know, him being put under that umbrella category of spiritual socialist. So that was good to hear. That's great. That's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I'm with a lot of the other readers. Uh, he was on my list here to talk about. Um, because I think it is an interesting inclusion and one that, that speaks to all the things you just mentioned, but also uh, part of his his resistance to that term socialist, of course, is that he his political career is taking place or at least part of it anyway, as the Cold War is heating up. And we often, of course, think about this post-war period as the Cold War increases once we're getting towards the 1960s as a period when, on the one hand, by the 1960s, we have this flowering of leftist activism. 
But on the other hand, it is leftist activism that very self-consciously tries to work within a Cold War context and thus eschew labels like socialists and communists and all those kinds of things. And so I know we talked a little bit about the early end of defining um, of socialists and activists defining themselves as something different than communists. But I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about how that Cold War context in this this 1960s context as well is shaping activists on that end of things. Yes, absolutely. So I thought of going into this um, when you prompted with the earlier question, but um, that is definitely an element that's at play throughout the book. Uh, obviously, there was a Red Scare earlier than the 1950s. There was the first Red Scare right after World War One, and really ever since you know Marxist theory became popular, popularized, there's been resistance to it and pushback against it as too radical, too un-American. You know, creating disorder and anti-government activity and, you know, the loss of individual civil rights or whatever the arguments are, that, you know, as you know, heats up in the 1950s again with the advent of the Cold War. And you're right, many activists at the time, even if they privately, you know, talked about socialism as being compatible with their values, um, they did not want to be uh, labeled or thrust into that group of communist agitators that were seen as foreign agitators, um, you know, taking their marching orders from the Soviet Union. That was definitely not uh, something that they wanted to be associated with, and it wasn't true of them either. And so they had to walk this very fine line with expressing their radicalism in a very Americanized way that didn't invite that kind of criticism and pushback. And interestingly, and I make this argument in the book, they actually use Christian values as one of the sort of uh, defenses against that kind of accusation. And they were they would say, hey, this is a Christian country. We're Christians, too. We're trying to apply these Christian values in society. And that's really all we're doing. And if it looks like socialism to you, you know, that's just because these Christian values, that's how they look when they're applied to daily life, you know, in terms of helping people and talking about equality under God and the need to fight for social justice. And, you know, everyone is um, a child of God that is deserving of that kind of fair treatment, regardless of their, the color of their skin or their social status, their job or their gender. Um, and so, yes, they did. They did have ambivalence about that term because of the climate of the red scare and, you know, anti-communist sentiment in the country uh, that and the stakes were very high for that, as you know, people losing their jobs and you know their reputations being ruined if they if they met with that accusation. So Henry Wallace definitely um, needs to be understood within that climate uh, and very wary of those accusations, particularly when he's in a high level post such as a cabinet member or vice president. And then after um, after the war, during the war, he actually gets replaced as vice president with Harry Truman, uh, Harry Truman, and that's why Henry Wallace never became president, and it became Truman after Roosevelt's death in 1945. And Henry Wallace is very, very upset about this, and he thinks that he would be a much better successor to FDR and you know understood FDR's vision for the world uh, much better than Truman. And so he's very disgruntled about this and you know has some public feuding with Truman, and then he decides for the 1948 election that Wallace himself, that he's going to run um, as a contender for a third party, which he calls the Progressive Party. 
And he becomes a very, very divisive figure on the left because while there are some radicals in the country or many radicals in the country who see him as the embodiment and reflection of their own belief and, you know, how ethics and morals and religious values could be infused into a political movement at the top levels of national politics. They also are concerned about the company that he's keeping. And so Wallace, in his effort to be inclusive and not to discriminate against anyone, starts to allow a lot of communists to, you know, become active in his campaign, serve as speechwriters, organizers, um, uh, camp, you know, just working for his campaign. And this turns off a lot of potential supporters on the left and even and, you know, many more liberals who start to try to organize against him and throw their weight behind Truman ultimately. So yeah, Henry Wallace is divisive at the time period. There were leftists that I mentioned in the book who thought he was wonderful and were, he was expressing the kind of democratic socialism that they believed in. There were others like Dwight McDonald, for example, who criticized him up and down just because of, or mostly because of his association with these communists. So your book makes it very clear that um, regardless of of the exact moment and how they're fitting into this larger um, political context or to the national political context, some of these folks are operating in a time when their beliefs are more welcome or less welcome, as you were just talking about. Um, so it's clear that there is this longer tradition. Could you also talk a little bit about what that, what we take away from that or what that means kind of going forward? What are some of the legacies and longer or continuing, maybe would be a better word, um, effects or influences that this tradition has both in terms of perhaps politics today, but also in terms of our thinking about the American political landscape historically? Yeah, so the other sort of tagline for the book is that, you know, many people think of religious activism as conservative and right wing, and that when you think of Christians active in politics, many people just automatically think of, you know, uh, the religious right or fundamentalists and those uh, advocating for, you know, pro-life positions or other cultural issues that are, have more, are more conservative agenda right now. And so one of that's a misconception that I wanted to address with the book is that, you know, Christian activism has not been confined to conservative politics, that Christian activism has also had a very robust um, trajectory and um, traction in leftist progressive politics as well. Um, And I think people make that false distinction of like religious conservative and leftist secular when there's a lot more complexity to that and a lot more uh, crossover to that uh, in terms of political activity and ideology. So that was one of the uh, issues that I take up in the book throughout. And, you know, the people in my book had to face that during the time periods that they were living, um, that, you know, many radicals thought they were too Christian to be a radical and many Christians thought they were too radical to be a Christian and they felt themselves in this sort of third space that they couldn't define, uh, which I think also uh, lends itself to the need for a new term and category for them to fit into. But I think they're important today for a number of reasons and I get to, uh, you know, more recent time periods in the last chapter of the book and the epilogue for sure. 
Um, there are there is a resurgence of progressive Christianity going on right now, and for the last several years, you know, publications like the Washington Post, the New York Times, Dissent Magazine have all run in many many times front page articles or feature articles on this what they think of as this phenomenon or this comeback for the religious left or religious progressivism. Uh, the person that they point to most often or quote most often is Reverend William Barber III out of North Carolina, who has been involved in grassroots activism and political organizing for a long time in North Carolina, voting rights, uh, civil rights there. But then he expanded that to the nation as a whole with his organization, Repairs of the Breach, and also um, a uh, updated version of the Poor People's Campaign that Martin Luther King Jr. started in the 1960s. And so they see Reverend William Barber as this sort of... Uh, throwback, if you will, to 1960s civil right activism and, you know, in the same sort of um, category as an, a, a, a Christian religious political leader like Martin Luther King Jr. There's a lot of comparison there. So that is definitely one thread that I think would uh, serve as continuity. Whether what Barber would accept the term socialist, I mean, that, again, is such a fraught term with different ways that people think about it and not necessarily want to put themselves into a political category like that. He tends to think of, these are these Christian values that I'm following, and if they look conservative, they look conservative to you. If they look radical and progressive or, or socialist to you, then they look socialist to you. But he doesn't want to actually embrace or identify with a term because he thinks it should be more about the Christian values and religious values rather than political extremism. Um, so I do talk about him in this uh, in this book as being in continuity with the spiritual socialist, and I think he fits that definition very well and would have fine fellowship with many of the people in the book. Uh, Cornell West currently is another one who I think would embrace that term you know, more um, happily, if you will, that uh, he's often you know labeled himself as a democratic socialist. And because of his strong Christian outlook in life and the way he frames things in a Christian viewpoint, the spiritual socialist uh, aspects of it, I think he would also find interest in and perhaps identify with. Um, and so, you know, he's been supporting Bernie Sanders' campaign, mostly a secular campaign. Bernie Sanders, Jewish uh, and not particularly religious minded himself, but has put his own political beliefs and agenda into moral and ethical terms that, you know, dovetail very easily with spiritual socialists, whether they be Christian or Jewish or uh, Buddhist or Hindu or what Muslim or what have you. Um, and so I think those sort of um, different threads and movements continuing today are need to be understood in light of this tradition that they didn't just come out of nowhere, that they, that they have been you know, around for decades for the entire 20th century into the 21st century, still struggling and also keeping that term and dream of democratic socialism alive. And I think spiritual socialists helped do that. They helped ground democratic socialism in a very American soil and you know, kind of deflect accusations that it's just a foreign ideology that happens in Europe or the Soviet Union or modern day Russia or wherever, Cuba, that it's actually something that has an American, American roots and American tradition as well. So when Bernie Sanders talks about democratic socialism as an American 
uh, ideology, I think spiritual socialists help to keep that in, Amer- in the American, in the public eye. Okay. Is, so I want to loop back just a little bit after or you've been talking here since you mentioned Bernie Sanders and you also sort of um, alluded to a broader um, potential religiosity, which doesn't necessarily have to be Christian within this tradition or, or this tradition having an influence more broad, broadly. And I was wondering if you might just talk briefly about the kind of ecumenical aspect of um, some of the people that you talked about, some of their beliefs and, and kind of how the spiritual religious versus Christianity, kind of where those lines are, or or perhaps to put this question a different way, um, many, many of the ideas that you're talking about for these individuals are very much grounded in Christianity, but they're also kind of thinking about them in broad, inclusive terms. And I was wondering if you mm-hmm. could talk about that. Yes, definitely. All the people featured in this book did not think of it as narrowly Christian or that, you know, this kind of activism or this kind of ideology or politics was confined to just Christians. So they definitely would never have made boundaries like that. Um, However, there is fluidity between the terms that I didn't feel the need to starkly demarcate in the book because um, of the fluidity of just the thinking and and these uh, historical figures' time periods. So the, the, the reason that there are mostly Christians represented in this book is because Christianity has been the dominant religion in American history in America. And so it was much more prominent to find you know, advocates of this kind of political activism who were some sort of Christian. It was very easy to find Jewish radicals, but mostly in a secular sort of um, political, secular sort of um, uh, framework and not really bringing their, their Jewish religion into their secular political activism as much and framing it that way. There are some exceptions, but For the most part, it was very overwhelmingly a Christian voice that um, I was finding with this this term of spiritual socialist. However, that does not mean that, again, they were confining this to just Christians. And they they often spoke about this in their in speeches and in writings that this was not just a Christian uh, framework that they were talking about or a Christian goal of creating this society. Um, again, because they were trying to break down barriers of race and gender and class, religion was also part of that. They didn't want to have uh, you know, any kind of prejudged uh, misconceptions about any religion or say that, you know, they, that certain religions couldn't be included into this agenda or to this vision of the world. And I think the best example of this is how uh, prominent Gandhi figured in so many of their you know, as a person that they really respected and looked to as a a very true exemplar of what they were talking about, that someone like Gandhi, who was not Christian, but was Hindu, could start a grassroots movement and could speak truth to power and could bring down a whole imperial system and challenge it in that way from the bottom up, just with, you know, people cooperating and organizing together in very simplistic ways, and that he wasn't all about power, but, you know, about changing people's lives from the bottom up. And, you know, many people in this book, some of them went to visit him. Uh, some of them went to learn about his uh, methodologies after his death. Um, some wrote essays about him. Um, and so they all idolized him in one way or another, 
even though he wasn't a Christian. Uh, and so that didn't matter to them. And that's just, a, I think, a good way of getting at what they were thinking of. If, some, if someone exemplified the values that they were talking about, then they were in common cause with that person, regardless of their denomination or their religious outlook. All right. Um, so I really enjoyed the book. There's a lot of very interesting um, folks in there that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, Dorothy Day and Polly Murray and a whole bunch of others that I hope listeners will pick up the book and read about. Um, before we kind of start to wrap up, though, I do like to take a moment in this kind of setting to talk a little bit about the actual book process and sort of how you did your research and what kinds of sources you use and perhaps if there was anything that you found particularly challenging or surprising or interesting um, as you were working through that um, research and archival process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this started out as my dissertation project and um you know, I did visit archives, for example, the Sherwood Eddy papers are at Yale Divinity School, so I went to New Haven for that. Henry A. Wallace papers are down in Iowa. I was able to get the microfilm sent from the Peace Collection at Swarthmore, so that I, you know, even though I'm from Pennsylvania, that would have been a nice trip to make. They were able to send me those microfilms of, you know, his notes and many of his primary sources. The Dorothy Day papers are at Marquette. University here in Wisconsin, but there are published, her diary has been published, her, um, many of her letters have been published, so that was incredibly helpful for me doing this research. Um, and so I was able to sort of take a case study approach to all these biographies and look into their writings, look into what was written about them, and that made it uh, easier to organize uh, in terms of biography and case studies and, you know, profiling people in that way. I think maybe the challenging, and, and many of them wrote prolifically, so it wasn't that difficult to find sources that, you know, primary sources and memoirs that they wrote, essays that they wrote. That was not difficult. I guess the thing I wish that um, would have been, uh, and, and I, this would have taken more time and money for me to, to research this, but actually teasing out the network between them uh, more and finding a, a more, maybe more cohesive network you know, that they interacted with each other. Some of some of that was obvious with A.J. Musty and Dorothy Day. They, you know, participated in picket marches and anti-war marches together and planned to go to Vietnam together during the war. Um, so they had a, a, a tighter relationship that was um, more obvious in the record. But, you know, other times I just felt like, you know, they, there must be more interaction between these people because they were such high-profile figures and speakers and activists, but, you know, I couldn't find all those connections between them. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr was sometimes a node of, you know, different connections between these people, whether they agreed with Niebuhr and got along with him or disagreed and criticized him. And you have both, um, you know, both coming at both angles in this book, depending on who you're talking about, mostly on the issue of violence. But, um, yeah, I guess that would be if I had had had, had more time uh, and ability to you know, get into the archives more deeply. I would have liked to tease out these connections and actually show, you know, a more cohesive network. Yeah, those kinds of connections are really hard to get at, and we talk as historians are are always worrying a lot in the. Um 
present age that how are we going to do this kind of research or future historians do this kind of research when we're all sending emails and text messages mm-hmm. instead of writing letters? But yeah. clearly and, and certainly um, older networks are often also hard to pin down and that those kinds of connections are either lost or at least extremely difficult to find. Yeah, sometimes it was just a matter of, you know, Staunton Lind was at one of the campaign rallies for Henry A. Wallace when Wallace was running for president in 1948. And, you know, Staunton Lind was there as a young man with his mentor, Matheson, and, uh, you know, obviously advocating politically for Wallace's election. And so there's that connection where you can see, okay, well, this spiritual socialist was, you know, thinking this is my guy, you know, he's thinking in the same terms as I am, but they may not have had ever a personal connection. They probably never met. So, you know, sometimes you have to take what you can get. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That is uh, the lesson of being a historian, I think. Um, Okay, great. Well, I, again, I enjoyed reading the book and have enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for taking the time there. We like to end by asking you what you're um, working on these days. Well, I am transitioning from higher ed academia. You know, I've been a part-time prof for a while in Wisconsin, but I'm transitioning to working for uh, MIA Recovery Project um, through the DOD and the DPAA, which is the POW MIA agency, uh, tasked tasked with tracking down missing in action soldiers from World War II to the present. So I'm transitioning to a job uh, with them here in Wisconsin, but I continue to write. I do have many articles about religion and politics that have already been published. Um, you can just Google my name, Vanessa Cook, if you're more interested in, you know, the different articles and essays I've written. Um, and I'm hoping to write some, I was working on a project about Joan Baez and her spiritual political activism. Um, that may become an article at some point. Uh, and I'm also working on possibly a book about American comedy and politics and how that has been interconnected throughout the 20th century and 21st century. So we'll see. (laughs) Well, those all sound great. I would uh, be very interested in um, several of them. So (laughs) I hope that um, those projects go well. And perhaps if um, you do end up with a book about uh, comedy, then we'll have you back on. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Take care.